Have you ever hit a wall? I don't mean literally. Maybe you have. We won't talk about that though, okay? But have you ever hit a wall kind of emotionally or or spiritually? Kind of that sense of, of uncertainty, of unease, that where you are now just isn't working for you anymore. Maybe you're young and, and you're in school and, and you're wondering, you're, you're making that transition to high school or to college or, or, or beyond to work, to the armed forces, wherever, and you wonder, am I on the right path? Is something right in my life? Maybe you're in the middle of your career and you've been doing it for 10 or 15 years and you wonder, is this what I should be doing? Maybe you're near the end of your career and you're looking forward to the retirement years and after you get finished wondering and worrying if your 401k will last as long as you will, you wonder, what's the next chapter in my life? What am I going to do? Maybe you're already retired and you're in that stage of life and you wonder, hey, you know, I gave 40, 45 years of my life to this company and to this job and to this profession and now what is the point of my life? What is God's will for me? I want to tell you that no matter where you are in life, God has a promise and God has a will for you. And I was wondering this week, in the midst of my life and in the midst of your lives, what is God's will for us? Do you ever wonder that? in the midst of your life, that there is some way you have somehow been separated from what the life you ought to or you could be living? Do you ever have that feeling? This week I was in a men's Bible study, and I told him I'd embarrass him, but Gene Shields, our wonderful retired former uh, visitation minister, was leading it, and it was a great privilege for me just to sit in it. And, and we read from the book of 1 Thessalonians in the fourth chapter, and there was something that jumped out at me on Friday morning, and it was this. It, it said simply, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is God's will. And you're like, oh great, God's will is a word I can't even spell. Um, It's a word, I was sitting in my office, I was like, now how many syllables does that word have? It's a little insight which your pastor does between services. Um, And I thought, it's a long word, and what does it mean? It's It's a big word, but it simply means that God's will for you is for you to be holy. That's a shorter word, but maybe even a scarier word. At least you didn't know what the last word meant. But you know what this word means, or we think we do, and we wonder, we're like, well, if God's desire is for me to be holy, we're in trouble. And if you feel that way, you're like, um, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. Um, so... You know, because I, I, I got problems. I got struggles. And we think, well, being holy is being good, being moral, being upstanding, and we try really hard, but sometimes there's just a gap between the person we are and the person we want to be. And I thought about that. What does it mean for us to be holy? Then I was reminded of the Old Testament. I was reminded of a book, uh, the book of Leviticus. Y'all familiar with the book of Leviticus? I'm sure you've all read it. 
I was thinking of the book of Leviticus. This is what I think of, is uh, when it's that book that you try to read the Bible in a year, it's where the wheels fall off. You're laughing because that's happened to you, hasn't it? You know, you were doing well in Genesis and, you know, the story and there was a musical about Joseph and so you get it and you get into Exodus and uh, there was a movie, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, and so it flows and then you get to Leviticus and it's like three chapters on like the plates in the temple. And you're like, oh, this is kind of boring. So you miss a day and then you miss five days and ten days and then let's try again next year. I just say that because that's happened to me. Uh, (laughs) And so what happens there, though, is we say, it says like, and you read it, and it's like, the forks are holy. The plates are holy. And you wonder, I didn't know plates could do good. And you wonder, I didn't know the plates could behave. But then what we realize when we read it is the plates are not holy because they behave The plates are holy because they are set apart to God. And that is God's will for you and for me, for us to be set apart to him. That is God's will for you, is that somehow we would move from living a life that is somehow, in some way, a gap between who we are and who we know God wants us to be. God's will is for us to go over the gap and to grow into the person that God wants us to be. No matter if you are younger or older or poorer or richer or bigger or smaller, That is God's will for you. I know that's kind of an ambitious thing to say. But that's Paul's desire here in our our epistle reading today from Ephesians chapter 3. He's writing to this church in Ephesus. And he is saying to them things that um, uh, I had a hard time untying. Patty did a wonderful job this morning in our children's message, and I thought, well, this is good. It saves me some time, because you already saw it. But, but what we saw was, was there was some difficulty. In, uh, th- there were some difficult words in there. He, he says, uh, I, I, want, I pray that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power. I pray that Christ might dwell in your heart through faith. I pray that you may have the power to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. I think that's at the very center of what it means to be set apart for God. And I've got some good news and some bad news. The good news is that God wants to give you everything you need to be set apart to him. The bad news. God wants to give you everything you need to be set apart to him. And you're saying, wait, Sean, how is that bad news? I like getting gifts. I've already gotten a gift this morning. It's awesome. But you know what happens? What happens when we rely on God to give us what we need? 
we have to admit that we can't do it ourselves. And that's really hard. Because if you're like me, you want to work really hard and you want results to come from that. The, 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 the history of humankind is the, is the desire, is the need for humanity to somehow bridge that gap between what God has put in our hearts as where we ought to be and where we are. And so the history of the world is a history of ways, of religions and philosophies, how people have tried to get to God. In Genesis uh, chapter 11, we even have a story, right? How many of you remember this story, that they actually try to build a tower so they could just climb up the tower to God? And people today, through various ways, try to reach to God. They try to do it on their terms. But what God does, what we read there is you can't make the things in that pa- this passage happen by your own power. Because if you sit there and think in the pews, I'm going to invite you to do this, just think there, and try to comprehend in your mind the height and breadth and depth and width of the love of God. How's that working for you? You've got to struggle. It's so big. God is so great and so amazing. And yet God wants to come to you. We know that because God sent His Son Jesus. That while we were trying to reach to God, God came down to us. And that's what's important. Is that at the point of our needs, at the point of that gap between who we are and who we know that God wants us to be, God comes and makes a difference. God comes, and what he says there is God is able to do abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. Because you and I can't imagine a world that's any different, frankly, between the world we live now. We know that there's that gap, but if you're like me, you really struggle to imagine how that is even possible how we could comprehend that our heart and our life could change. Any of you who have ever been in the throes of addiction and then in recovery, you know what I mean better than even I understand that. That sense that things will never change, that the best we can do is manage it. What we need is a new beginning. But Paul warns us we can't do it on our own. I think of a funeral that I did in my last appointment. I actually just assisted at the funeral. Another pastor did the funeral, and it was a lovely lady who I was not a member of the church but lived in our community, and I visited in the weeks leading up to her death from cancer. And at the funeral, the pastor said something that I pray no one ever says at my funeral or your funeral. And he said this. He said, her life could be summed up with a song. Maybe you all remember that song. The famous song said, I did it my way. It's a fine song, but I hope that's not the story of your life. Because what happens when you try to do it your way, you are somehow frustrated. Have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to do something 
in your own power and in your own way and as hard as you tried and as much as you worked, it just didn't happen. And you were kind of left kind of defeated. But somehow God wants to come and do that. That somehow God wants to come and do more. God wants to come and transform your life, your witness. I think about my ministry. I told you a little bit about my calling, but I want to tell you a little bit about my early years in pastoral ministry, which were not that many years ago. I was appointed to two small churches in northern Kentucky in 2012. I was really excited. I was going to go up there, and I, you know, I was just so sure that I had what it took. Uh, that, that, and, and all of you who are clergy and clergy spouses, you, you know what I'm saying. So I, I was going to get in there, and I was just going to be the most amazing thing that ever happened to that church. And I was going to get in there, and that church, they were just going to, it, just, it was just going to be amazing. And I got there. And my first church on the first Sunday, there were nine people. There were nine people. And I thought, what have I gotten into? I left a good job, wonderful church family, nine people. What am I going to do? And I, I remember sitting there during the prelude, sitting in the chair behind the pulpit, and I remember praying, Lord, could I at least have ten for my first Sunday? You laugh, but I will tell you, during the pastoral prayer, two more people came in. <laughs> And we had 11 people that first Sunday. I never saw those two people again. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) uh, But, you know, in all the things I had in my first year in ministry, all the things that I thought, you know, the book said you ought to do, and all the things that that we were, you know, supposed to help us grow our church, it just didn't work. It just didn't work. Like, we'd plan, and we'd work, and we'd do all these things, and then just nothing. And then like finally at the end of the first year it was like, God, we don't know what to do. How can I save these little churches? But you know what I learned was that somehow, and this is so frustrating, God wanted to do what God wanted to do. You ever had that experience that you tried really hard to make something happen and it didn't happen and then you didn't try hard and you were just open to what God might do in your midst and then God did something. And you know what? We'd, and the people we tried to bring in, the people we worked with and visited, they never came, but then like people would just show up. And they were, they were not your usual church people. They were kind of, it was a... Anyone who's been to my last church, you, you know, it was kind of a different, some different kind of people. Some people who were, uh, might have been even sinners. I don't know if we have sinners in church normally. Um, but we did in our last church. It was crazy. Uh, some of you are like, no, we do. We do, I promise. Uh, first-hand knowledge. Um, but... That was God, and like, and like people, we, did, we weren't even sure we wanted them in our church, and yet they kept coming, and God like worked in their heart. I remember one person who came, and uh, the Sunday she came, I preached the worst sermon I've ever preached in my life. I didn't even understand what I was saying. <laughs> but God did, and that day it changed her life. 
I wasn't expecting a lot from that sermon, but God did more, far abundantly more, than we could ask or imagine. I thought about this church. Uh, I love to pray uh, in our prayer chapel. If you have not been over to our prayer chapel, uh, I encourage you after service is over, just go out those doors, go to the left, and the room is on the right. I think it's the most, I love this room. It's the most, I think it's the most beautiful room in our church. Many of you did work on that. It's just an amazing room. And I love that room, and it's got that big stained glass window, and the light shines through it when I go in there and pray. And in that picture uh, is, is, is a man preaching in our first church a few miles down the road on the Durham farm in 1783, the oldest Methodist church west of the Appalachian Mountains. And it's a picture, and he's preaching, but he's preaching in a beautiful church with a stained glass window and a nice carved pulpit. But I want to say something. I hope I don't offend anyone when I say that. It's a beautiful window, but I do not believe that is how the first church was here at Centenary Church. In 1783, I'm going to tell you that based on what we know about other early Methodist churches is they probably met in someone's house. It was probably a log cabin with a dirt floor. And there were probably less than 10 people there the first time Centenary Church met in 1783. And I always think about that. And I'm so inspired because you know what? Those people in 1783, I'm going to put money on it if I bet. I don't. But do you think those people in 1783 saw this church today? I, couldn't, I don't think they could have imagined it. Could they have imagined that that little group of seven to ten people meeting in a log cabin would one day be a church that touched hundreds of people every week? A church that meets in this beautiful 54,000 square foot building. A church that is literally making a difference around the world. Could those founders have seen that by their own strength and power? I think the answer is no. For those early founders of Centenary Church, they took their little faith and they took their desire to worship God and God took that faith and God has done for the past 233 years far abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. That is the story of Centenary Church. That is the story of people around the world that when they have faith, when they open themselves to the power of God, God can do far, abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. And so, friends, I ask you, where are you? Where are you in your life? Are you in a place where, where you're kind of stuck? Where maybe you've done well in your life, financially, socially, and so on, academically, athletically, but you wonder maybe there's more. Maybe God could do something in your life and in my life. 
Maybe God could bridge the gap between the person that I am and the struggles I have and the person God has called me to be. Maybe I could even have the the ministry that God wants me to have. Wherever you are, that ministry, that witness. This morning I ask you, have you committed yourself to Christ and to His purposes? Have you said, Lord, I I give up of myself and I give myself to you. Use me as you would. Work through me in ways that would surprise me. Work through our church in ways we cannot even comprehend. Because he's God. That's the business God is in. It's taking ordinary people and doing extraordinary things. Friends, when you do that, when you say yes to Christ, yes to new life, friends, God will do more in your life, abundantly far more than we can ask or even imagine. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.